Hello, Game of Thrones fans, and welcome back to the Long Winter Podcast. It has been a long winter indeed. These last, well, 12 months, it's been over a year now that we've all waited for Season 7 to premiere ever since Season 6 ended. And I feel like it's so close, I can almost taste it. Last night I was marathoning a few more uh, episodes of Season 2. I've already rewatched all 60, but... Now I'm kind of, as I'm doing these recaps, kind of going back and picking and choosing a few episodes here and there to watch and, um, you know, make sure I have my top moments and uh, all the details flushed out. And I just, I noticed that HBO has updated the logo for the Game of Thrones season and it's the Night King portrait image of him with half of his face uh, darkened, pretty pretty ominous looking and uh, definitely gets you in the mood for a you know very dramatic and exciting season seven so I, could, I feel like it's just right on the doorstep and as I'm putting out these recaps uh, it just tightens up the window to me because I'm, I'm pretty busy and uh, you know just a lot of Game of Thrones things uh, going on right now so without further ado we're gonna dive into season two here and um, season two for me I don't know about the rest of you guys but it's Kind of the more the most frustrating season, in my opinion. Um, you've got Rob Stark, Stannis Baratheon, and Renly Baratheon all kind of on the doorstep of King's Landing, or at least you, you think that they are, and yet they're just stagnant the whole season until Stannis uh, attacks in the. Um, the Battle of the Blackwater in the Blackwater episode, uh, episode nine. But even that is an anticlimactic battle. So, uh, just a very frustrating season overall. And, you know, as I finish up all six seasons, I think you'll see, you know, where I rank it. I, it's probably going to be my least favorite season, even though there is a lot of intriguing plot lines and different, um, scenes and storylines in this season so without further ado let's let's dive in i'm just going to kind of run through some of the storylines here and just kind of all the major characters so starting with rob stark uh rob stark's basically you know in the riverlands we see him kind of battle the lannister army in a few different skirmishes within the riverlands and um you know here's where he meets uh talisa one of the um I guess just uh, nurses on the battlefield. She's taking care of some soldiers, in particular the Lannister army. And he comes across her, notices how pretty she is, starts talking with her. Anyways, he falls in love with Talisa. And um, by the season finale, he weds her and forsakes his vow to Walder Frey. So Rob also attempts to partner with Renly and in my opinion this isn't done you know nearly well enough as it could have been um it seems strange to me that Renly stalls at Storm's End where he's located and then why not to team up with Stannis as well when you see that Stannis ends up taking over for Renly when Renly dies why was there no attempt to then partner with Stannis? I know Stannis feels like Rob is also, you know, gunning for the throne and is a threat to him. 
But if you sat down with Stannis or, you know, sent Cat as an envoy and just told him, you know, we're not interested in the throne. We just want to avenge our father's death. We have common enemies here. Let's combine our forces, take out the Lannisters. You can have King's Landing. You can have the Iron Throne. I just want to avenge his death and then go back to Winterfell and hold the North. Uh, I think Stannis would have been fine with that, and especially if you, you know, make this accord and make it better for both parties, a little easier for both parties to then get what you want. And um, it's just so frustrating to me to see that, you know, these teams do not work together. There's three different parties all trying to beat the Lannisters, and they just sit there with their thumb up their ass, you know, just fighting each other and it's really quite ridiculous and so I mean that's essentially Rob Stark season um, you know in the middle you've got Catelyn um, trying to get her daughters back she knows that Sansa is held in King's Landing with the Lannisters she does not know where Arya is you know and she wants her daughters back so she tries to strike a deal with Tyrion Tyrion sends Littlefinger out to Cat. Obviously, there's a lot of history that dates back, and Littlefinger negotiates, or well, at least he kind of sways Catelyn to release Jamie in favor of, of getting her two daughters. Okay, so let's switch over to Arya Stark. Arya Stark is fleeing up the King's Road with Yorin, who has been sent down by the Night's Watch to gather some soldiers for the Night's Watch. He picks up Gendry, Hot Pie, Arya, and a number of others, including Jock and Hothgar and some other prisoners, to take to the Castle Black. Uh, well, they get set upon by the Gold Cloaks and other soldiers of King's Landing to try to capture Gendry, and then later on they are taken out by a party of Lannister troops. Uh, so Arya and the rest of the people sent for uh, the Night's Watch that weren't killed get hogtied down to Harrenhal. And so this is where Arya then comes into contact with Tywin Lannister. There's three episodes, I believe, where Arya is the cupbearer for Tywin. And she's in Tywin's hall area and listening to his battle plans listening to him meet with his liege lords and um it's you know it's it's very tense you feel uh really on edge for Arya. i mean i remember when i first watched this scene or these scenes you definitely are on the edge of your seat you're very anxious for her you're feeling like you know you know my gosh what would happen if Tywin finds out that it's Arya, and then especially when Littlefinger comes in, who has actually seen Arya Stark, knows her face, at that moment, you really are as nervous as ever for her, and so it brings me to this question, you know, what would have happened had Tywin discovered that it was Arya, especially after these quite little moments that the two of them have where Tywin seems to be rather impressed by her, you know, her intelligence, her strength of character, you know, for a 12-year-old, 
at the time of the of the story, you know, she's well educated. She's got a strong mind. Uh, she's pretty witty. I think Tywin does gain some respect for her, and I think had he found out that it was Arya Stark, I don't think he would have mistreated her at all. I think he would have immediately contacted you know Rob and Catelyn and said you know I have Arya, we'd like Jamie back and and tried to negotiate a proper exchange for Sansa, Arya, and then Jamie coming back to his side. So to me, it's, it's a pretty cool dynamic. I kind of wish that he had discovered that it was Arya just to see his reaction and um, see the respect that he had for her, you know, actually be, be brought to the surface. You know, and I think also with Arya in this position in Hall and her uh, kind of at the right hand of Tywin, she starts to see the bigger picture, develop some level of appreciation for Tywin while realizing the need to not be as honorable as her father was in cases that call for her to, to be a little bit more crafty, a little bit more of a cheat. Um, you know, that moment where she finds that little piece of intel she takes the letter she reads it you know she has a plan in her mind to to notify rob and and her mother about you know what the lannisters are doing and i think you know she does that even though i think she got this you know respect for tywin as well i mean tywin never makes her list she doesn't you know she has the chance to give jock and hathgar three names and she never once thinks to give Tywin's name and that's a bit curious and that's the other perhaps frustrating part in season two especially regarding Arya's storyline is that here she is with this opportunity to name any three names that she would like Jock and Hothgar you know that he's going to get it done especially after you see the way that he takes care of business on the first name there's no you get the feeling that there's no person big or small on the power scale that he can't reach. And it's perhaps a little bit of a disappointment that Arya wasn't able to think about the big picture and just, you know, what Jockin was really offering here and what her opportunity was to, you know, end the war. And so, but just to the larger point that she never gives Jockin Tywin's name and I think that's because she's you know she's got some respect for Tywin she or he rescues Gendry keeps her him Arya hot pie out of that situation where they were prison and potentially going to be murdered one person at a time with you know no hope to survive they're given tasks they're kept alive and treated fairly I think that that's something that Arya respected and, and, you know, gave Tywin some credit for. Okay, and so beyond that, she develops relationships, like I said, with Jockin. She develops a relationship with Gendry, Hot Pie as well. And then uh, finally she does escape with an eye on returning to her her family in the Riverlands. Uh, moving on to the wall. So uh, this is a rather slow season for the Night's Watch. They go north 
to investigate what Mance Radar is up to with the wildlings. Um, so they're they're ranging into the north and they stop at Craster's Keep. And this is the first time we see Craster's Keep. You know, we find out that he weds his daughters. You know, has just kind of this uh, endless cycle of him impregnating his daughters. If he has another daughter, okay, he raises her. If he has a male child, then he has this offering for the White Walkers. Well, we see John watch this offering be put out there, and he sees the White Walker then take the baby, and he's immediately stunned about what's going on here. And then at that very moment, you see the Lord Commander come up behind John and you know, kind of hit him over the head, like, what are you doing? And then he pulls him aside a scene later, and they have a talk, and, and John's basically telling him he saw what took the baby. You know, Crestor's offering his his male children up for, basically, for an offering, and, you know, basically as a sacrifice. And, you know, how do, you know, how do we as the Night's Watch allow this to happen? And... He sees that Lord, the Lord Commander Jior Mormont already knew that this was happening. And so my question here is, if Jior Mormont knew that this was going on, where does he think that the kids are going? Does he think that they're being sacrificed? You know, we hear in, in Season 3 that Craster has had 99 male children. Uh, he actually ends up having 100 because there's a fresh baby as he's being killed. He doesn't know that it's has been born yet. And then obviously the kid that, uh, you know, little John, the one that's saved by Gilly. So 99 end up being offered and one saved. So there has to be this larger contingent of White Walkers because we do see then in season three where a child has been turned into a white walker and you have to imagine that's what they do with all of the children that are then offered to them is this process of turning them into white walkers did your marmot know that that was going on or did he just assume that the babies were being sacrificed to me it's a little bit troubling that your marmot didn't you know, immediately kind of assume that there might have been something fishy going on. If you're offering children to some dark force out there, let's assume that he knows it's the White Walkers. How could he not? I mean, who would, who else would take them? I don't think that the, the wildlings here make sense. I mean, the wildlings have left Craster alone for a long time. Craster wouldn't need to give them an offering. And so... We have to assume that he knows that it's the White Walkers. So if it's the White Walkers, you know, what do you really think that they're doing with the babies? Um, I just, I think that that is something that's a little bit unsettling that Jor Marmont let that go on. And, and doesn't think to, you know, doesn't have this moment to think, you know, what could be happening with those kids? You know, are they building a larger army? And if they are, you know, why am I allowing this to happen? Okay, um, you know, and then so at the end of the season, we see John come across a little group of wildlings. 
in that group is Ygritte. Uh, he holds her. You know, they decide at that point that they need to execute her because, uh, you know, there's no information that she has to give them. And she, they can't set her free. She'll go tell Mance where they are. She has to be killed. John fails to kill her. She runs. His group has left him. So he, and in the process of chasing her, now he's gotten further away. It's getting close to nighttime. Basically, he's shit out of luck. He's stuck with Egret, and he falls into the hands of the wildlings eventually. Here he meets Mance Radar. He meets Tormund, Giant Spain. He meets some of the giants for the first time, and uh, the Lord of Bones, and a bunch of other wildlings. Eventually, they come across Corrin Halfon and his group. They become prisoners together. And then uh, in the finale, John kills Corrin Halfhand in order to be accepted by the wildlings as a wildling himself. Somebody that's now betrayed the Night's Watch and is now a member of the Free Folk. Okay. Uh, let's flip to Danny and Garth. And this is another frustrating storyline, in my opinion. I think it's right up there with the worst storyline in the entire series for any character. So, in essence, Danny's entire season is boiled down to a stumble across the Red Wasteland. They come upon Karth after some dialogue. Karth lords let her in to the city and they, you know, they host her there, they feed her, they get her people fed, clothed, give them place for shelter, kind of tell her about the city and, you know, show her around. It's basically this, this grand plan to take her dragons and hold her prisoner. They don't intend to give her anything. You know, Danny just basically has her hand out saying, you know, I need money, I need ships, I need an army, you know, somebody to back me, and they're unwilling to commit any uh, resources to her, having not seen anything that she's capable of. I mean, she's at this point still a very young woman. She's in her teenage years with three baby dragons and no army and a scant party behind her. Why would they, you know, put up their own resources to back her, having not seen anything that she's capable of well at the end they do kind of find out what she's capable of she goes to the house of undying where her dragons have been kept captive and she gets chained up by the wizard she pulls the uh Dracarys move for the first time which is pretty badass and you'll see that as in one of my top moments of the season so she lights him on fire they break free of their chains and Let's talk about the vision that Danny then has in the House of Undying. So I think this is rather important as we come down to the final 13 episodes here. We see Danny walk through uh, the throne room and it's winter, which I think is a sign that she's going to take King's Landing during the winter. And we know that winter is now here, so... It was definitely a omen for when she was to come to 
Westeros and take over the Iron Throne. And then as she's leaving the throne room, you know, she, there's this sound of a baby crying. And uh, so she leaves the throne room. She crosses through the wall, uh, through the entry gate north of the wall. And she then comes to this hut where Drogo and her child that she lost are waiting for her. Here she has, you know, a moment of reflection with Drogo. You know, she obviously misses, you know, her betrothed and husband, but she never gives in, you know. It was kind of like this dual option for her, right? She could stay there with Drogo. She could, you know, hug, kiss, like give in to that moment. But she, she relents. She walks out of that hut and... Then she comes to her dragons and meets the wizard. And then, obviously, like I said, she does the Dracarys, Dracarys, and she is freed. Um, but I think it's a very interesting kind of omen for what might be to come. Could Drogo potentially be resurrected? Uh, you know, she Daenerys mentions again this not until the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, you know, will you return to me? And I'm, I'm wondering if her magic could potentially get to the point where she could reverse that and, and make that possibility. Who knows? Okay, so that's Dany and Karth. Uh, she's freed, and then she, um, you know, she finds Zara Zondotos, uh, in bed with her handmaiden they had betrayed her uh, they then lock them up in the cell or well in that little um, vault that was empty and uh, then just kind of steal a bunch of treasure and gold that they can use to buy ships let's now switch over to the Baratheons I've kind of delved into this a little bit when I talked about Rob but uh, basically, they're at war with each other. The disobedient Renly won't team up with his older brother, Stannis, which I don't understand this. Any younger brother would know that, uh, yeah, my older brother is first in line. That's, that only makes sense. So to me, a lot of what goes on the next four or five seasons is because of Renly. Because Renly did not partner with his brother Stannis from the get-go. And this isn't really delved into by uh, George R. R. Martin other than to say that Stannis just didn't engender a lot of respect, a lot of love for him because he was just you know, too rigid, too stubborn, not a very good people person. But I don't think that that should matter there's a line of succession and you need to honor that line of succession unless the guy is crazy, unless he's somehow unfit to lead. And I don't see how anything that any of Stannis's characteristics were that egregious to make him unfit to, to command. You know, you've got to get behind the person that's next in the line of succession and that's Stannis. And by the two of them warring against each other, it just um, spelled their downfall. 
so there, you know, Renly is just chilling and Storm's End and chilling. There's really no better word for what is going on than that. Uh, Stannis, meanwhile, is trying to rally up whatever remainder, remaining amount of bannermen he has to come to his side and that he knows that he's got to get the men that Renly has. So he's first got to deal with Renly. He does, uh, in another one of the top moments of the season, we see Stannis employ Melisandre to murder Renly. And I have to say, you know, Game of Thrones has a, a tremendous amount of what-the-fuck moments, but this was the first one, you know, aside from that opening scene in the pilot where you see the White Walkers for the first time, this is the first real what the fuck moment. And when that first time that I saw Melisandre get on the ground naked with her legs open and you see her start giving birth and this demon just crawls out of her vagina, I I just about lost it. I That's when I just knew that, okay, Game of Thrones, this is some serious shit right now. Holy fuck, what's about to happen? Um, that's when you really know that Game of Thrones is not messing around, that this is some other kind of fantasy show that, you know, we haven't, uh, you know, seen in our time. Okay, so then Renly's assassinated, and uh, Renly's bannermen flock to Stannis, and now Stannis is ready to go. But again, uh, there's... Catelyn does not turn around and go meet with Stannis. Catelyn flees with Brienne back to the Stark party and there's no partnership with Stannis which is a loss for both teams. Alright let's cut to Joffrey. Um, Joffrey's whole story arc in season two is just this torment Sansa Stark and he does a good job of it again proving just how uh, wild and you know childish and really incompetent as a king that he is even one for how young he is. I mean, you know, 15 years old, I think, is what his age is in this, at this time. And it's understand, okay, yeah, 15's young, he's inexperienced, but even for that age, he's somebody that really does not understand what he's doing. He's more concerned with inflicting pain upon people because he's a kid that doesn't have much courage so he's got to act like he's big and tough by pretending to be big and tough and, and doing it with acts of violence. There's a particular moment where he's having Marin Trant, one of the members of the Kingsguard, brutalize Sansa Stark in front of a number of the lords and ladies of the court. And it strikes me that nobody stops. The, I mean, I understand that it's the king, but they're all just standing there watching rather than, um, you know, throwing up some sort of, you know, contest to it. It just, for some reason, I'm just struck by how unconcerned the rest of the members of the court are until Tyrion walks in there and says, what the hell are you guys doing? You know, this is your intended wife. You can't beat her like this. And if, for, never mind the fact that Sansa's, you know, 13 years old, maybe 14 at this time, and 
unre- completely irresponsible of what her brother and, and her parents are doing, considering that she has had no contact with them. And, you know, how about we take into account what I have done personally, and I meaning Joffrey, I mean, you're the one that cut off Ned Stark's head. What do you expect them to do? They're not going to just come down there, bend the knee, and say, oh, yeah, you're the king. Thank you for chopping off my father's head. Can we pick up his body and take Sansa with us? No. I mean, would you do that if you were them? No. So this whole thing is just so stupid. And that's just basically Joffrey's storyline to continue to torment and act like an incompetent fool that he is. All right, and then switching over to the Greyjoys. uh, So at the end of season one, Robb Stark has sent Theon back to his father for the first time. And this puts Theon in a very precarious situation. You know, he's either got to choose to go back and serve the Starks, who don't really have any loyalty to him. I mean, he's nothing but a ward to them. He's not going to get any high position within their camp, right? They're always going to be very careful towards him because he has this Greyjoy name and they don't trust his father. Or Theon can decide to stay with his family and try to prove to his father that he's worthy of leading his men, you know, taking over from him eventually and, and being the Lord of Pike. And I think that that's a pretty easy decision for a son to make, even if Theon knows that his father is a little bit of an ornery person, you know, somebody that's already not respecting Theon very much and calling him a coward, calling him, you know, ungrateful, uh, you know, disrespecting him in front of his sister. That's hard on him. And I think that, you know, he's got a lot to prove and he wants to prove to his dad that he's an ironborn. And so to me, it's not really even a decision at all. Of course, Theon, once he's faced with this situation, is going to go try to prove to his father that he is an ironborn. And um, the fault therein lies with Rob Stark for putting Theon in that situation. I mean, you should never have allowed Theon to go back to his dad knowing that, that there was this opportunity for him to then try to prove to his father that, you know, he is an ironborn, he hasn't been turned by the Starks, that he still is loyal to the Greyjoy family. So then the Greyjoys attack the North, they see an opportunity and they seize it. Theon is told to just take out some small river, um, some town by the coast. He decides to take Torrin Square and then strike Winterfell when they come to a Torrin Square. So Theon is able to capture Winterfell and he holds it briefly until uh, Rob gets news and sends Ramsay Bolton to take, you know, take him out. So then Theon's captured by the end of season two and kidnapped away from Winterfell. Because of his capture of Winterfell, Bran and Rickon have escaped with Hodor, Hodor and Osha and um, Summer and uh, Shaggy Dog. 
Uh, we see that Master Meister Lewin is killed in the process of the Greyjoys being overcome by the Bolton force, which is sad. I'm going to miss uh, Master Lewin. To me, he was the best Meister of the series so far. Okay, so now let's get over to Sansa Stark. Uh, Sansa, to me, begins the process of her maturation. You know, we see her in season one, and she's just kind of this typical teenage girl, you know, in love with materialistic things, wanting to be, you know, this high important, you know, in this high important position as a queen or princess at the time. And, um, you know, she gets to King's Landing and she realizes it's not what her dreams were. And, you know, especially not Joffrey. He's entirely the opposite of what she envisioned as a person to marry. And through her torment at the hands of Joffrey, she begins to realize that she needs to get out of there. But she she plays it pretty smart. She knows that she can't show that. And, uh, you know, she just kind of tries to be the um, stoic, you know, 14-year-old child at that point in time. You know, not give any sign of discontent there for another reason for them to hurt her or, you know, perhaps have her meet the same end that her father has met. And then by the end of the season, Littlefinger begins to set her hook, his hooks into her, you know, once she's been passed over for Marjorie, you know, you see this smile across Sansa's face. She knows that, okay, now Joffrey's going to leave me alone. I won't have to marry him and, and, and hopefully I'll be left alone. Littlefinger comes up to her. He knows right now is the time to, you know, set my hooks in and, and win her over to my side. And so the process begins. Okay, so I think that covers the majority of the important storylines and the arcs of the season. For me, the top moments, let's get through these. Um, we mentioned Melisandre giving birth to the demon um, that assassinates Renly. That's high up on the list. Again, that was the first what-the-fuck moment since the debut episode when we see the White Walkers, in my opinion. Um, then there's the battle at the Blackwater, Tyrion's speech. I think that's another great moment. You don't really expect that from Tyrion. You see, you know, all of the men sort of losing confidence, and Tyrion steps up in place of the king uh, because Joffrey goes crawling back to his mom and, you know, rallies the troops. And ultimately, you know, Tywin and his force with the Tyrells come to save the day, but I think that that moment where we see Tyrion kind of stepping out of his comfort zone and taking charge in that moment is is a crucial moment of the series, especially for Tyrion. And then um, another big moment is, for me at least, in the finale episode is watching Stannis choking out Mal. He says... Where's your god now? Huh? And uh, I just thought that was cool because we don't see why Melisandre all of a sudden comes to Stannis, right? She's all of a sudden, she's there at the beginning of season two. You know, she's got this belief that it's Stannis. Well, what told you that it was Stannis? And, you know, why is he all of a sudden trusting her so easily? 
And so I thought it was great that he finally turns the tables on her and says, look, I trusted you. You told me that you saw my victory in the flames. Well, I didn't earn no victory. And, you know, it's time that I hold you accountable. Another great moment throughout the season is Jocelyn's assassinations at Heron Hall. You kind of just understand now how badass Jocelyn is. I mean, without any real effort, he's taking out anybody that Arya mentions. The Arya and Tywin scenes are another top moment. Um, and then there's the boys saying goodbye to Maester Lewin. I thought that was pretty emotional. And then obviously the Tricari's moment in the House of Undying, burning the wizard. That's the first time we see Danny use the Dracarys command. Okay, um, we're going to go over characters that I'll miss, characters that I won't miss. I just got a couple here. Uh, I'm going to miss Meister Lewin, and I'll also miss Corrin Halfon, uh, the Richard Gear clone. <laughs> and uh, characters that I won't miss, I won't miss Renly Baratheon. Um, I love the fact that Renly doesn't trust Littlefinger and he kind of gives him a piece of his mind when the two of them meet. But um, to me, he stalls unnecessarily in Storm's End and it just kind of pisses me off that he doesn't uh, support his older brother. And I think that that dooms their, you know, both of their sides. Um, so good riddance to Renly. And uh, I also won't miss the Black Karth Lord. His name is Zaro Zondotos. Yeah, he was kind of a nothing character, just trying to use Danny. And, you know, anytime there's characters like that, I'm going to dislike him. Okay, so let's uh, go over the uh, top episodes of the season. I'm going to say number three is The Ghost of Heron Hall. We're going to give it the number three spot for the scenes with Arya and Tywin. Again, you're on the edge of your seat. And um, we're getting closer to the end of the, um, the story arc at the wall where you know things are kind of progressing to the point where uh, John gets caught behind and... Um, is captured okay the number two episode of the season will be Valar Magolas in my opinion it's just a solid finale we see Arya escape as I mentioned we see Danny use the Tricari's command we see her escape with her dragons and we see John kill Corrin Hafond and you know commit to the the free folk and you know kind of get settled in as a uh, spy within them among other things obviously in in the finale you know there's that choking moment that i mentioned and tywin rides in to be the hand and he kind of takes command and that's pretty cool and then the best episode of the season obviously is episode nine black water it's their first true battle episode and while it kind of falls a little bit short of you know, what we ex hoped it would be for every book reader out there that knew what was going to happen. It lives up to what is written on the page. Uh, it plays out rather nicely in the way that it's directed. And 
Um, I love the shots from the Blackwater Bay back into Magor's Holdfast, where we see Cersei with the ladies. And, you know, this is typical Cersei getting drunk, being a uh, just <laughs> complete uh, cynic and um, pessimistic little cunt where, you know, she's just bringing the entire mood of the place down where she wants it for some reason, just completely sapping the energy in the room for no other reason than that she's unhappy. So that dynamic, you know, the shots between Blackwater Bay where the battle's going on, back to Cersei being a bitch, and then back to Blackwater Bay where, you know, the Hound is afraid of fire and, and Tyrion has to take command because Joffrey has no idea of what to do is, you know, it's a, it's a fun one to watch. It's well, it's definitely a well shot episode. Okay, so comes time to rank this season with season one. Well, I thought that this season had some strong individual moments, you know, the moments that I mentioned among others. It doesn't hold up as an entire season. And there's a, a lot of just standing still where the characters don't end up doing much of anything for the entire season. I mean, Rob literally just stays in the Riverlands. I mean, he fights these couple small battles, but you don't see any of that action. And then Renly literally sits in camp at Storm's End before being assassinated. And the entire Daenerys storyline, like I mentioned, is her entering Karth, being taken in, learning about the people of Karth, and then having her dragons taken from her and then getting her dragons back and then leaving Karth. It's almost completely pointless. You know, give credit, she does grow a little bit as a character there, and she needed that, but she could have done that elsewhere. And, I mean, I realized she was stuck in the wasteland, and, you know, she had to get out of there somehow. But to spend an entire season in Karth, complete waste of time. And then at the wall, again, they're ranging north, but for 10 episodes, all you see happen is them get to Crasher's Keep, then John ranges with Corn Hafan to, you know, in this small uh, splinter cell. He fails to kill Egret, he chases Egret, he then gets captured by the wildlings, and then he gets in deep with them by killing Corrin Hoffon. So just this small kind of progression there. And if we look at the other segment of the Night's Watch, Sam, Gren, Pip, they come across the Dragonglass. I mean, that was the only other thing that was important in that entire story arc. So to me, season two, while interesting, while some intriguing dialogue and definitely some intriguing scenes, just as a season where you expect big moments, big events to occur, none of that happens. And for me, season one is better than season two. And uh, once we get into the next couple seasons, we'll see where it truly stacks up as a whole. All right, well, that's going to be it for me. Um, stay tuned for a breakdown of season three, which should be coming shortly. A man must end this podcast now. A man must rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes.
so must a girl 